Welcome back to the Stronger by Science podcast. This is your host, Eric Trexler. Today I am joined by a temporary guest co-host. His name is Greg Knuckles. Greg, thanks for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me on. No problem. Um, before we get into uh, the show today, a couple announcements, or I guess reminders. Sometimes people ask how they can support the show. Uh, there are many ways to do it if you feel inclined to do so. One way would be subscribing to the Mass Research Review. Uh, and this is an exciting time of year because our Black Friday sale is coming up in about a month, give or take, uh, around Thanksgiving time. So uh, that'll be coming up around the end of November. Uh, another way you could support us is by subscribing and downloading uh, the Macro Factor Diet app. Uh, which you can find in what are they what is it called there's the google play store and then the app store yeah for iphones um available on both uh and of course when you're restocking your supplements uh you could go to bulksupplements.com and use our discount code it is sbs pod at checkout that will save you five percent on your entire order and if you like the show, uh, don't forget to rate it on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, helps a lot. And since we haven't been remembering to say that, we haven't gotten many reviews recently. So, uh, yeah, if you haven't reviewed the show yet, we would appreciate it if you did so. And if you're going to leave a bad review, which I wouldn't recommend, at least make it funny. Right. That, that's yeah. the policy. So if you're if you're going to leave a bad review, be completely unhinged and, and don't hold back. Yes. Um, all right, Greg. Road to the stage. How's it going? Road to the stage is uh, is going pretty well. So within the last week, I've had my first weigh-ins under two thirty nine and two thirty eight. Uh, that is, of course, in freedom units. Uh, as I mentioned on the lot on the last podcast, the two thirties are going to be an exciting time for me in terms of milestones. And I am a boy who loves milestones. Uh, two thirty nine means I am halfway from my very largest to the goal that I'm trying to get to. So, uh, after grad school, I, the, the biggest number I ever saw on the scale was two seventy eight. And I'm trying to get below 200. So 239 is the midway point. Um, and I also had my first weigh in under 238. So that is uh, 40 pounds down. So a uh, cool little milestone there. Uh, 236 will be down 30 pounds since I started using Macro Factor. 235 will be the lightest I've been in functionally my adult life. Uh, that's what I got down to for my wedding. And I have not seen it since. Um, so yeah, yeah. Exciting stuff coming up. Um, and this, this is going to sound like a plug, but this is, uh, very legitimate. So, uh, macro factor has been helping me navigate this general point in my weight, which historically has been very rough for me. So, I've had several cuts throughout the years stall in the kind of 240 to 245 range. And what I would notice was that getting down to about that point was generally pretty smooth, pretty steady, and very manageable. And then I would just hit just a really hard plateau, just hit a wall, and I would feel like I would need to drop my calories lower and lower and lower, and didn't seem like much happened. 
And then eventually what I would resort to is just kind of <laughs> just cutting down to the lowest calorie intake I felt like I could sustain. Um, and turns out I never could sustain it. And eventually I just get uh, kind of frustrated and say, eh, fuck it. Who, who wants to lose weight anyways? That's for the birds. Um, but anyway, so my experience with macro factor has validated that experience, but has also helped me navigate it thus far successfully, uh, in a way that I have previously been unable to. So my energy expenditure in the app, uh, as of like two weeks ago was like 3,400 calories. And then I did hit a very substantial slowdown in weight loss once I cleared about 244, 245 on the scale. Um, and my calculated energy expenditure in the app has dropped from like 3,400 calories to close to 2,900 calories. <laughs> so, wow. Um, but no, like that's, that's, that's at a weight that historically you've plateaued at. Exactly. Wow. So it's, uh, so that, that, 100% matches my previous experiences like and and it's so bizarre to me. So I uh the I got a, I got above 240 initially just for a powerlifting meet. So I I was a 220 and I was part of a team going to a powerlifting meet and we wanted to sweep as many weight classes as we could. There was another very good 220 at the gym uh and and I was like around 224 and he was around 215. So we just decided he'd be the 220, I'd be the 242. And if I was going to be 242, I said, well, fuck it. If I'm going to be a 242, I'm going to be a 242. Um, <laughs> and then for whatever reason, my body just loved being at like somewhere in the low 240s. It was as if I encountered a set point that I had never previously achieved as a top weight in my life. And ever since that point, it's been very hard to get below that. Um and so like, yeah, uh, the, the, the app has been giving me the data that I have previously experienced, but not, uh, quantified, I suppose. Um, but it, it's also helped, I think, keep me sane and help me maintain a m more moderate approach to weight loss. So like previously, if I would have dropped my calories by 200 and then 300 and, still not even started getting anywhere i would have just said ah fuck it we're going 1500 and just just try to white knuckle it as as long as i can um but no it's it's dropped me down to like 2300 calories per day which i mean for someone my size is pretty low but it's uh it's a lot more sustainable than like 1500 would be so um yeah uh, progress has started again. It still feels manageable and sustainable. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's not the news I would have liked to have gotten, but it still feels good just from a sense of like validation. Right. Um, and I, I still feel pretty good about the road that I'm on. You know, it's really interesting because when you look at the metabolic adaptation literature mm -hmm. there's two data points right there's before and after yeah in most studies and so you don't get insight into that trajectory mm -hmm. and 
I did get a question on social media not long ago asking about, you know, should we expect metabolic adaptation to be linear mm -hmm. in nature? So if I've already experienced this much from point X to point Y, can I extrapolate that to point Z, mm -hmm. you know? And I said, well, probably not. You know, I, I wouldn't anticipate that. I would expect that the more, the more severe things get, it really starts to ramp up until you reach like, you know, we talk about like ceiling and basement effects. Like I don't expect it'll continue in perpetuity until yeah. you're like, you know, breaking the laws of physics. Right. So I was like, no, it'll probably be pretty flat and then ramp up a lot. And then eventually it just is maxed out. Mm -hmm. But I, I've never given much thought into exactly where it starts to accelerate and how that might differ from person to person. So that, that's a really interesting anecdote along those lines. Yeah, I mean, my my personal experience is that I was born a 240-pound man before I ever reached that point. <laughs> that, that, that just seems to be the weight that my body gravitates towards. Um, so yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll see how it goes from here. It, it very well could be that it's just like a weird number that my body's trying to get to and stay at. And once I like fully break through and maybe get down to like 235, 234, something like that, it'll say like, oh, okay, well, I guess we're not doing the 240 thing and uh, everything will become easier again. Or it could just be a slog the rest of the way. Uh, the the future is still shrouded, but um, yeah, I mean, at, at the moment, that's uh, that's what I'm experiencing. You know, it, it's funny you mentioned that story of like the powerlifting team and kind of just like filling out the weight classes, people moving around. I had a similar experience as a high school wrestler, like mm -hmm. wrestling in America. Uh, the, the kind of cliche expectation is everybody's cutting weight. Everybody's, you know, doing water cuts every week and trying to get as lean as they can. Uh, with with my team, I was either, it was either my sophomore or junior year, but we had seniors at 140 145 152 mm -hmm. right and so the question was do you cut all the way down to 135 or do you bulk your way up to 160 because i was kind of in the middle range at that point point. Mm -hmm. and so i ended up doing just an unbearable cut mm -hmm. down to 135 to the point that my teachers were i had one i don't want to exaggerate a teacher pulled <laughs> me out of class and said eric I am horrified by what I've seen happen to you over the last several weeks. What is happening? Like mm -hmm. they were concerned about me because yeah. the weight loss was so rapid and precipitous. So I get down to 135. I actually get down to 132 for good measure. And I freaking failed the hydration testing that the state does. Uh, you have to certify at your body fat or at your weight class. And I failed. And so then they said, okay, Eric, why don't you bulk up to 160? <laughs> <You've been there. laughs> so for the first couple of meets when I was at 160, everyone on the bus would be like starving and thirsty and like, oh, I haven't, you know, I'm, I'm, this is terrible. And I'd be sitting there like chugging Gatorades to try to get high enough to weigh in and be able to yep. wrestle at my weight class. And like we were all miserable, but for very different reasons. I felt so bad trying to like water load for every weigh in and everybody else hated me for it. But yeah, yeah tricky business. But 
All right. Um, How, how's your uh, how's your road to enlightenment going? I would give it a four point five out of five. All right, that's how it's going, and that's not my assessment. Um, this is a funny thing I noticed the other day. So I, I started reading these books about secular Buddhism, which is a huge step for me. You know that I I can read, but I choose not to. Um, but with Buddhism, there's a lot of lists. Yeah, and I, I think like a lot of numbered lists. I believe maybe it has something to do with the fact that it is, you know, in, in the starting days was primarily an oral tradition mm -hmm. and lists are kind of easier to, you know, transmit and remember and things like that. that yeah. That's kind of speculation on my part. But when you start reading about Buddhism, whether, you know, whether you're taking a secular or non-secular approach, there are a lot of lists. The three of this, the five of this, the eight of this. Yeah. And the noble truth the path. Yeah. The, the poisons, the eightfold path, yeah. et cetera. So there's a lot of numbered lists and they're important. And, you know, I think one of the big benefits of going this route with secular Buddhism is not just reading it and saying, wow, that was a, a lovely book, but actually applying it day to day. And I, I felt that this would be one of those, I'm not normally big on memorization as a learning tool, but I did think if I'm going to apply these principles throughout the day, I need to know them. <laughs> like I have to actually have them committed to memory. So I started to make some flashcards on one of those like free websites where you can make some flashcards. Um, I thought it'd be valuable. Mm -hmm. And uh, the other day I was like, where did I make those flashcards? So I go to like look them up and I didn't realize that they were public, uh -huh. uh, but they were. Uh, and someone rated my, <laughs> someone rated my <laughs> flashcards, which I don't understand what you would, who in the why who's going around being like oh here's a random set of flashcards on oh, i'll throw my two cents in w was there was there like a subjective review attached to the number <laughs> I, I wish like no. uh overall pretty good but i deemed you half a point for whatever <laughs> no it was somebody was just scrolling through the depths of the internet found my buddhism flashcards and said i'm gonna evaluate this <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that alone is just absolutely hilarious to me. But I got a 4.5 out of 5. Not too bad. Where'd the other half a point go? I'm not sure. I don't know if if I didn't have enough breadth to the list, if maybe there were some some typos. But the road to enlightenment uh, is going approximately 4.5 out of 5. Sounds good. Uh, one of the things that has come up, this is kind of trying to get some fitness into the mix here. Uh with the road to enlightenment, I've talked about how I've uh, adopted a vegetarian diet. And there's an interesting discussion in the, uh, I think it was the Stronger by Science subreddit. It yeah. could have been the, yeah. And it was about whey protein and people who are on vegetarian or vegan diets were weighing in on how they feel about consuming whey protein. Um, and I think it's kind of a good new, a, a piece of good news if you like whey protein because it's a, really nice protein source. And if you're, you know, if you have an interest in maybe cutting down your utilization of animal-based food products, or if you're concerned about, uh, you know, environmental aspects of consuming, uh, you know, animal products, whatever the case may be, no judgment whatsoever. But people were kind of debating, well, whey protein, it comes from cow milk. How do we feel about that ethically? How do we feel about that environmentally? One of the things that a lot of people don't recognize about whey protein is, we value it as like gold, right? People in the fitness world, but people in the food science world are like, man, how are we going to get rid of all this crap? Like yeah. when you make, I, I think the number is when you make a pound of cheese, 
you end up with nine pounds of whey. Well, that that's like what we think of whey, like powdered whey protein. The nine pounds is the liquid form, right? Yeah, th- that's the protein itself, but also the associated liquid. Yeah, but but the the general idea is when you make cheese, when you make a number of conventional dairy products, there tends to be a lot of whey that's left over. Yeah, and what's really nice is that uh, there are a lot of uh, food producers who, who make these different dairy products who are truly just trying to get rid of whey protein. And one of the things that's cool is a lot of the really big cheese manufacturers are also getting into the sport nutrition game. And it's very clear why they have a ton of whey protein sitting around and there are environmental issues with just dumping it. And it, it's, it's a really nice instance it, where it you, makes the frogs too jacked. Correct. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it's a really nice instance where there is this utilization of what would otherwise be essentially a wasted byproduct. Um, and it's something that makes me feel extra good about whey protein. It's a great protein source. And it's also, it doesn't have quite the environmental impact and doesn't have quite the upward nudge on conventional dairy production that you might expect it has. Um, I, I did try to like contact some people who are more like, food industry insiders and supplement insiders to get get nice to try to get a sense of how much of the way in supplements is truly being recycled from these food operations and how much is you know not being you know repurposed waste product i couldn't get a great answer for that but seeing like so for example glanbia is a huge dairy producer and they've got all sorts of sport nutrition, uh, you know, protein products within their brand. Pretty good sign that that you're getting some whey protein that otherwise would have gone to waste, yeah. which is which is pretty cool. And one other thing that you brought to my attention, just the cost. Well, yeah, I mean, the the, the cost would would certainly incentivize companies to reuse way that would otherwise be discarded rather than going out of their way to generate whey, which doesn't seem like a cost effective way to make a whey protein supplement. Well, well no, because I mean, milk itself is more valuable than whey protein. Like you, you can sell it. So a gallon of milk has about 24, 25 grams of whey. So there's basically like one scoop of whey protein per gallon of milk. And a gallon of milk goes for like yeah, 250, three bucks, depending on where you live. Um, and so, I mean, you know, you're, you're not buying protein supplements that are two and a half, three bucks per serving. So it, it that would be very dumb. <laughs> like you're, yeah. you're getting rid of a $3 product to sell. Like what does whey protein go for? Like 25 to 50 cents a serving? I don't know. It, it's something like that. So yeah, that, that would make very little sense. Um, or, you know, you could convert it to cheese. And there's uh, like a vert virtually all of the protein in cheese is casein yeah um and there's there's like a hundred grams of casein uh per gallon of milk so you could just look at cheese labels and look to see like how much cheese would i need to eat to get a hundred grams of protein in uh that that'll give you a rough idea of how much cheese a gallon of milk produces and then you can just look at the price of the cheese uh and it's it's a lot more than the milk and it's certainly a lot more than the whey. So just from a pure economics perspective, if someone were processing milk to get whey out of it and discarding the rest, that would be a tremendously bad economic idea. Yeah. 
uh, and whey protein, whey protein itself would have to be tremendously more expensive uh, right. for that to be the process kind of underlying it. Yeah. So once again, no judgment at all when it comes to, you know, how people view the consumption of animal products. Um, but I, I do know at least some people out there who are like, you know, what? I like whey protein, but I'd prefer to utilize less uh, animal products or conventionally produced dairy products and things like that. So it, it's a little bit of good news for people who find themselves in that situation. Another thing that you brought to my attention that I thought was really cool is apparently people are working on some lab-based approaches to dairy production. So the same way that people are looking into lab-grown meat, uh, there's a company that's already got products on the market. Um, they, they've got like an ice cream that's getting popular, but apparently what they do is uh, they use fungus and uh, f grow this fungus in fermentation tanks. And um, based on the genetics that they kind of mess with for the fungus, uh, apparently it produces whey protein um, just within this kind of fermentation tank. And so they can use that whey protein uh, and, and then go through a whole bunch of processes and create things like cheese and ice cream. So um, I'm really intrigued to see where this goes in the future with, uh, you know, lab grown meat, lab created dairy products. It's it's pretty, uh, pretty fascinating. And I'll, I'll be excited to see if they can get to a spot where these things are commercially available at a price point that makes sense. Sounds good. All right. So how about feats of strength? What do you got? Uh, so I just have one this week. Um, in the most recent episode, I had several cause there, there had been quite a few big meets that had occurred. Um, but I, I think at this point, uh, major competition season for most strength sports is done. Uh, I, I think there are some big weightlifting meets near the end of the year, but the kind of intense competitive calendar for uh, powerlifting and strongman, I think, mostly wraps up in October. Um, so it's it's gym lift season. Uh, and there was one particularly impressive gym lift that I came across, uh, and that was Daniel Clements, who is a IPF 66 kilo or 145 pound powerlifter. Um, he pulled 310 kilos or 683 pounds in training. Uh, that is over the current world record of 303 and a half in that weight class. And, uh, it, it was, it was a solid pull. It looked smooth. It looked like he probably had a little bit more in the tank, uh, no straps, clean lockout, uh, good control the whole way through. Like it, it wasn't an iffy lift. So, uh, you know, hopefully he hits that on the platform soon. I want to be shocked to see him go 700 in the next uh, year year or two. Um, I think his current best pull in a meet, Daniel Clements, is uh, I think it's 297 and a half, so like uh, 655. So he's making uh, he's making progress at a at a pretty decent clip. So. The 310 is crazy, and if he goes 320 in the next couple of years, that would obviously be even crazier. Good stuff. All right. All right, so next, I've got a research review segment, and I'm going to try to keep it a bit snappy, um, get to the point, but this is a topic that we have alluded to, but we've never really tackled it head on, right? So the topic is going to be energy restriction and protein restriction 
specifically as it pertains to health and longevity. And th this comes up in the fitness circles all the time because um, if you look at the longevity, life extension, anti-aging circles, the things they talk about seem to be fully opposed to what you see in the bodybuilding powerlifting circles, mm -hmm. right? So the longevity folks, they're like, how do I reduce mTOR activity? Uh, how low should I restrict my protein to get all the good stuff? Uh, and then of course, you know, yeah, how, how low can I get my IGF one levels while still staying alive? Exactly. Yeah. So they, you know, in bodybuilding, powerlifting, we focus on all these anabolic processes. We focus on overfeeding high protein diets and things like that. And they're very much looking at the complete opposite of that energy restriction, protein restriction, uh, you know, there's quite an interest in fasting, things like that. And so it puts a lot of fitness folks in a precarious spot because they're like, wait a minute, I got into this because I'm interested in health. And this makes me feel like maybe I'm doing the opposite of health. Yeah. Uh, you know, so it, it is something that is worth uh, at least briefly addressing and trying to, to put like a practical uh, set of conclusions with it. So when it comes to energy restriction and protein restriction and impacts on health and longevity, uh, I've come across some really excellent review papers by John Speakman and colleagues. And you might remember that name, John Speakman, because he was involved in some of the studies we've talked about lately with, um, we, we talked about metabolic rate over the lifespan. He was involved with that. He was also involved with the one, uh, the, uh, what's the term I'm looking for? Um, what, you know, when people exercise and then they compensate by reducing other types of energy expenditure, the, uh, constrained energy yeah, model, yeah. uh, that, that so big, he, he's recent... a, he's a Ponser collaborator. Absolutely. Okay. Yes. So, um, anyway, energy restriction, when we talk about the mechanisms by which caloric restriction could impact health and longevity, um, uh, it's really a long list of mechanisms because, I mean, sensing energy is one of the basic indicators of where we're at physiologically. So when you have uh, an abundance of energy or you have a, a pretty large deficit with regards to energy, it affects a lot of different stuff. So when, when people look at the potential mechanisms linking caloric restriction to increased longevity, they're of course looking at things like mTOR signaling. They're looking at insulin and IGF-1 signaling. They're looking at the AMPK cascade. They're looking at sirtuins and autophagy and oxidative stress and inflammation. Every buzzword you've ever heard related to health is within this enormous list of potential mechanisms. And the reality is that the energy state of a cell is very important. I mean, it, it is a critical component of physiology. So it, it's one of those interventions where you would say just face value. Is there any basic plausibility to believe that this would meaningfully have an impact? And with energy restriction, I think the answer would be yes. You know, th there's, there's a, a long list of plausible mechanisms that could be at play. So when that's the case, you kind of skip to the next part, which is, do we have evidence to believe that caloric restriction, uh, actually works with regards to life extension um, and longevity. And there is some evidence that caloric restriction works, um, largely coming from 
insect studies and rodent studies. So when you look at rodent models, mice and rats, you'll see that caloric restriction uh, with a magnitude of like 30% restriction. So instead of eating normal food, cutting that down to 70% of what you know the, the rodent would normally eat, uh, that can extend lifespan up to like 20%. In, in some of the studies you see, that's a fairly typical, uh, fairly typical number. And what's interesting is that the, uh, there are some instances in which the, the effect is pretty dramatic. So if you look at pretty extreme caloric restriction protocols, you might see, uh, increases in longevity that are up at like 50% extension of lifespan. And there is, uh, a pretty clear relationship in rodent research between the degree of caloric restriction and the extent to which lifespan is increased. So if you're looking at, you know, 20, 30% uh, caloric restriction, a, a study might only find, you know, 20%, for example, uh, extension of lifespan. But if, if you're getting up into like, you know, 60, 70% energy restriction, which is awful, I mean, like you think of what if I only ate 30 or 40% of what I typically eat uh, mm -hmm. while very carefully trying to avoid malnutrition. That That's what we're talking about there. And in, in some rodent studies that has increased uh, lifespan by up to 50%, which is notable. So just to put some numbers on that. So if, if we were to assume, and we'll get into the details in a second here, but if we were to assume that like a 50% increase in lifespan you know, it basically Speakman and colleagues did some modeling and said, okay, what might that look like, uh, you know, in, in human beings? I mean, we're talking about, uh, a male increasing their life expectancy from 78 to 117, right. Or, mm -hmm. or a female increasing their life expectancy from 83 years old to 124.5 years old. Uh, so if, if we could find, uh, a tolerable intervention that did that. I mean, that's a meaningful extension of lifespan. Yeah. Um, but the magnitude of effect, I mean, uh, of course, we'll for the moment just Look kind here, of man. If I had to reduce calorie intake by 70% to live <laughs> more than a hundred years, dude, just just put me in the ground at 70. Like those <laughs> those additional 40 years are not worth it. I, I agree with you. I agree with you for sure. Um, but, but the reality of these interventions is the magnitude of the effect is going to depend on the magnitude of caloric restriction, but also the time at which restriction begins. So you might look at that and say, well, hey, maybe when I turn 76, I'll, you know, I'll get really into this and it'll matter to me. And then I'll just kind of drop my calories and live to, you know, 120. That's not necessarily how it works it's about the degree of restriction and the time course of restriction so they they did some modeling in one of their review papers where they uh you know they looked at okay how many extra years beyond the expected value of like 78 let's say 78 years old how much more do you get with a given uh percentage of caloric restriction that was done at a certain point in your life, right? So for example, a 30% energy restriction done pretty early in life. So uh, if you are only 20% of the way to that 78 year uh, life expectancy, uh, so pretty early in life, if, if you do a pretty severe restriction, you might get like an extra 11 years or so, right? 
but if you're doing this restriction, you're applying it at at the age of 70, um, or, or I'm sorry, 70% into your life, which we're assuming is 78 years. Uh, we're, we're talking about less than a third of a year of extension if we're talking about 15 to 30% energy restriction. So the timing matters, the magnitude matters, but one of the questions that comes up here among many, which we'll get into. One of the questions that comes up for me is what would happen? So this table shows from 20 to 80% of lifespan onset. What about 10%? I feel like the, uh, I feel like the logical implication of this is like, if you want your kids to live a long time, start starving them from a young age. That's absolutely but not. That was maybe a little bit too spicy and salacious to include <laughs> in this table. I find it, uh, very intriguing that they just happened to start it at 20% of lifespan. Um, I don't know. Do with that what you will. I, I'm thinking maybe they figured that malnutrition's bad and uh, during in you know periods of intensive growth. Well, but uh, eh, fair enough. You might want to eat and stuff. 20% is still smack dab in the middle of puberty for most people. Yeah. Like uh, just using round numbers, if we assume someone's living 75 years, 20% is 15 years old. The moral of the story is feed your kids. Uh, that is not the moral of the story. <laughs> that is my moral you, of the if story. If you strictly interpret this table, <laughs> we're not doing that. Uh, okay. Uh, so Eric is not saying starve your kids. Speakman is saying starve your kids. So if you <laughs> have, true. if you have any complaints, no, it's, I'm completely joking. Um, okay. So, one of the questions that comes up, uh, people talk about calorie restriction, but they also talk about protein restriction. And this is what captures the attention of a lot of fitness folks is, wait a minute, I, I thought protein was good. Now you're telling me low protein makes me live longer. So here's where it gets interesting. If you look at the insect data, um, that data seems to indicate that protein restriction is very impactful and potentially even more important than calorie restriction when it comes to extending lifespan. However, when you look at rodent data, uh, it tells a different story. The rodent data would indicate that energy restriction is far more impactful than protein restriction. So if you look at uh, the effects of rodent studies where they do calorie restriction with protein restriction, lifespan doesn't seem to differ when you compare that to studies where they do calorie restriction without protein restriction. So the calorie restriction, wherever protein happens to be, seems to really be pulling a lot of the weight when it comes to life extension in rodents. And when I think of myself, you know, my, my self image, I don't think of myself as an insect, mm -hmm. you know, I'm, I'm, am I a mouse? Pretty much, you know, I, I, I'm much more of a mouse than I am an insect in my opinion. Yeah. So based on that alone, I, and I consider myself pretty, pretty reminiscent, pretty reminiscent of the capybara. Yeah. That that's, that's the big rodent, right? Uh, dude, sure. those things are so cute. They they are cute. I'm checking this to make sure that this is real time fact check. Yeah, this is the first thing we've said on the podcast thus far that I feel the need to fact check. I mean that that is a cute animal. I just I'm not certain that it's necessarily a rodent, but I think yeah, it, is. it is. It is a rodent. Yeah. Uh, yeah. If if you've never looked at pictures of capybaras, especially baby capybaras, I I know you have. Yeah. But dear listener, if you've never checked out pictures of baby capybaras, they're so cute. Um, definitely the best rodent 
on this planet. Yeah, I really appreciate that contribution. You got it. Uh, now, I don't have that much prepared for this episode, so I'm I'm just trying to slide in with with capybara takes when I have the opportunity. I perfect. apologize. Yeah, that's great. Um, now, when we look at the rodent data, it would not be fair to say that protein restriction has no impact. Uh, it is simply much smaller than the impact of caloric restriction and the relationship is curvilinear and the exact uh, ranges are pretty important to look at. So when you look at protein restriction in, in rodents, you have to get to pretty low intakes to see noteworthy benefits in terms of lifespan extension. So, I mean, we're talking about protein making up a single digit percentage of your total energy intake and your total energy intake is low. Uh, if you're combining this with caloric restriction. So uh, it's a pretty extreme intervention you would have to pursue uh, to see this type of effect in rodents. And then, you know, looking at the other end of the spectrum, you know, where does lifespan start to fall when protein intake gets high? Um, it re You really don't start to see that until up around the like 60% of your diet coming from protein. Like maybe you could argue it happens a little before that, but, uh, I mean, it's up around 50 or 60% of your calories coming from protein. And when I say you, I mean mice again, where we start to see, uh, a, a kind of a downward, uh, trajectory for, uh, lifespan. So there is an effect technically, but within the ranges that are typically considered, feasible and tolerable in terms of, you know, protein percent of energy. Uh, it just doesn't seem to matter much within the thick of that distribution. So the food restriction effect as it relates to lifespan and rodents is, is largely driven by calories, uh, and not much coming from, from protein restriction itself. Um, and, and just to put some numbers on that for context, um, if you were to reduce your protein levels by 80% uh, for a rodent, again, that, that would increase their median lifespan by like 15%. But if you were to reduce calorie intake by half, so instead of reducing by 80%, if you're reducing calorie intake by 40%, the median increase in lifespan would be twice as big. So, so it's, it's a, a much smaller degree of restriction and a much bigger impact on lifespan in rodents. But you know, the next point is the fact that simply put, humans are not insects and they're not rodents. So we have to keep that in mind. I was um, getting concerned there for a second. Greg, one of the things we've talked about uh, off the air is the fact that humans are enormous outliers when it comes to longevity. Yes. And there are a number of figures on the internet that are fascinating to look at where they'll put many different species, completely different types of organisms. And they, they tend to fall on these tight lines that are scaled to like uh, heart rate, for example, right? Um, or, Either heart rate or metabolic rate. Yeah, heart rate, metabolic rate. But there's all these different ways of scaling uh, longevity to blank. And what's really fascinating is that you'll see all these different organisms from completely different types of, you know, animals and, and, and stuff 
and they all fall on this line and then humans are just way out in left field yeah. with, with this unusually long lifespan. Yeah, we, we wouldn't be that huge of outliers if we were birds. Yeah, because birds live longer than most other animals relative to body size, heart rate, metabolic rate, ho however you want to quantify it. We we would be particularly long lived birds for our size, but not just crazy outliers. But for mammals, it's it's outrageous. Yeah. Um, humans live far longer than we would be predicted to based on our our basic physiology. Yeah. So that's important to keep in mind is that we are we are outliers. And so when we are trying to extrapolate from animal models that are not outliers, there are generalizability issues that are kind of built into that. Another thing to keep in mind is when we look at this rodent data, which I, I think most would agree is probably more applicable than insect data, um, unless you're really into ectosteroids and, and then you're, <laughs> you're all about, <laughs> yeah, if, if you, if you have not taken our turkesterone advice, um, yeah. maybe you should pay more attention to the insect research. Um, but anyway, uh, rodents, a lot of times when they're in a lab environment and they're able to live out their days, uh, cancer is a really leading cause of death. Um, but when you look at humans, we have, uh, much higher prevalence, relatively speaking, of issues related to metabolic syndrome and cardiovascular disease. Uh, we have different stuff to worry about that that caps our longevity to some extent. So there are certainly some uh, some issues with generalizability that we have to keep in mind when we look at this literature. Um, aside from that, a few other caveats to keep in mind when you think about this topic. First of all, something that you kind of alluded to at the very beginning before we start talking about practical application of caloric restriction you have to keep in mind those are enormous degrees of caloric restriction even for the more modest approaches like 30 percent caloric restriction is not fun mm -hmm. uh 70 isn't let, let's not even joke about the idea that that's feasible because it's just not right yeah. so um when you look at the rodent data as far as we can tell, rodents in caloric restriction studies are very hungry and they don't get less hungry. And that's really important when it comes to practical application. Uh, I, I think we might, even if you were really enthusiastic about this and you're like, oh, I can do that amount of restriction and it's not a big deal and I can stick with it. Like, I'm sure I'll get used to it. There's nothing in the animal research that would indicate that, that there's a, a point at which you're like, oh yeah, this is fine. I, I love eating only half of what I used to. Uh, yeah, the hunger is persistent because again, we're, we're not we're not talking about if if you were chronically overeating uh, to a really high degree and then cutting down to like a fairly typical level. We're talking about restricting from a baseline typical level of intake. You know, so doing seventy percent restriction from like a. 2000 2500 calorie diet yeah something like that i, I mean it, it's a basic physiological drive like it makes right. sense like people with uh people with pretty intense sleep disorders don't stop being sleepy right you know like there's yeah. there there's the human body is very adaptable but there are limits to what it can adapt to and to how much it can adapt yeah exactly and so uh th there were a couple major um you know in, in one of these review papers that I'll link in the show notes, uh, Speakman and colleagues talk about a couple things that 
the animal studies simply can't tell us about caloric restriction. First of all, um, we don't know if they're feasible for humans. We don't know if the degree of uh, restriction required is something that can actually feasibly be implemented for long enough to see benefit. Um, and then another question is whether or not we will necessarily have the same benefits. Uh, you know, like I mentioned, there are different causes of death that have to be considered. Uh, you know, we do not have the same exact longevity limiters that might take the life of a mouse in a lab. And one of the really creative things they brought up that, that's really insightful is the fact that uh, Speakman has what he calls the clean cupboards hypothesis. And, uh, you know, one of the things that the animals you'll see in these uh, rodent studies is they don't really have to do much in terms of activities of daily living. You know, food is provided. They're just kind of chilling there. And they don't have the same degree of exposure to like pathogens. Uh, they don't have the same issues to overcome when it comes to like if they needed to heal a wound, right? So Speakman's uh, clean cupboards hypothesis talks about how, you know, when we restrict calories, animals, humans, whatever, we do a lot of catabolic things that are simply just to, to try to make energy balance work. We're just trying to survive an energy crisis. And some of those catabolic things may be good for longevity. Um, you know, so we might reduce fat storage in our liver. We, we might uh, reduce our visceral fat. We might increase the degree of uh, the balance between autophagy and apoptosis, where we are, you know, kind of tuning up some of our damaged cells and recycling some of those, uh, you know, broken down proteins and organelles and things like that. So there are some aspects of this catabolic approach that might be helpful for longevity, but it's not all good. And so in the clean cupboards hypothesis, he, he kind of creates this, this work of uh, this kind of fictitious scenario where somebody's stuck in a house and they have to make do and they're really hungry, right? So of course, at, at some point they're going to clean out the cupboards and eat all the stuff and that's good. But, you know, they might get to the point where they're so damn hungry that they eat the house plants, right? That's not good. That, that's not what's supposed to happen. That's not beneficial to anybody. It makes the house uglier. It's not really helping them out eating house plants and stuff. Less oxygen. Yes. So the idea is there are some things that get kind of catabolized along the way. There are some catabolic processes and there are some mechanisms of energy conservation that do not directly promote longevity and could have downsides. And to put that into more practical terms, like you could have impaired immune function because you're so energy restricted and you don't have the energy to fuel a proper immune response to a pathogen, or you might have a wound and it just won't heal. Uh, and that's not good. Mm -hmm. So when we're in this energy restricted state, there are a mixture of pros and cons when it comes to longevity. Yeah, um, one of the, um, one of the hypotheses that I've seen for how the, the, the ways that energy restriction can improve longevity is that, um, like via reduced, uh, immune function, like basically when there's some sort of, of insult that would generally provoke, um, an inflammatory response, if you have reduced immune function, you have less inflammation. So 
you have fewer cells that were previously undamaged that end up being damaged in the uh, in, in the inflammatory cascade. And so then you get less cell turnover. And the more cell turnover you have, the quicker you start eating into telomeres. And so if you can constrain that process to some degree, uh, maybe it can just slow down the aging process a little bit. And like you're getting at, that's all well and good until you have something that needs to be addressed quickly. Right. Like if you yeah. get sick with something and you have just less glucose and ATP for your immune system, well, now something that could have been a small problem might become a big problem. Yeah. Or if you have a significant wound to recover from. So, yeah, I mean, it, it's something that um, perhaps if spread over an entire lifespan might have some benefits but in a lot of discrete instances on kind of like a day-to-day or week-to-week basis, it could have some very notable downsides as well. Right. And I think, you know, one of the other things to keep in mind is that if you play out this process to a really extreme example where you're really restricting energy and you're you're also by default or maybe on top of that purposefully restricting protein, now we start to, to deal with some of the things that really limit the health span uh, of a human adult. And so when we get older, sarcopenia is critically important. It's something that can be very limiting, and and that's the age-related loss of muscle mass and muscle function. And so, you know, when when sarcopenia really sets in and we lose strength and we lose muscle mass, that can threaten our independence, our ability to carry out activities of daily living. And so, uh, you know, you, you also have to worry when we take these rodent models, for example, and look at severe energy and protein restriction. Well, how do we balance that against the, you know, you know, with, with an, an older adult, if we do severe energy and protein restriction in the absence of resistance training, we might run into some serious issues where sarcopenia is a limiting factor. And, you know, and then you start talking about fall risk. And then you start looking at the, the literature, the data on, the survivability of a fall with a serious fracture in old age is really eye-opening, you know? And so it's, it's not quite as simple as taking molecular mechanisms and saying, yep, that works for me. Let's, let's do that. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, so when we talk about extrapolating that to humans who have to still carry out these activities of daily living and have enough, enough protein and enough energy to support the maintenance of important lean tissues, um, it gets really complicated here. So when it comes to practical guidance, I think there are things that we can glean from some of this caloric restriction literature. Um, Applying it strictly and literally is, I I think, just completely not feasible. Um, But, you know, when we look at what limits humans in terms of health span and lifespan, you can see uh, some benefits of not being in a chronic state of excessive surplus of energy, right? So we can take these mechanisms and turn them the other way and say like, okay, well, you probably don't want to spend really, really enormous periods of your life chronically overfeeding to a really uh, extreme degree. I I think that that's a a fairly clear takeaway. Um, Exercise, I think with humans has the potential to have an additive or even synergistic effect when you combine it with some degree of caloric restriction. So I I think there's some decent evidence. I'll link to a review paper that simply being in a state of high energy flux 
is good metabolically. So if you take someone who's not restricting their calories to the point of being in a deficit, but maybe they were overeating and were kind of in a process of weight gain, you say, let's just get down to energy balance and increase exercise, mm -hmm. you know? Uh, so we're not losing any weight whatsoever, but we're increasing energy flux and we're no longer in a surplus that alone can do some pretty important things when it comes to a variety of risk factors for chronic disease. Like we can see some big impacts on how that affects people's liver, how it affects their glycemic control, how it affects their, their brain and their vascular tissues. There's a lot of really cool stuff that can be done in the absence of weight loss there. Well, I, I mean, to, to kind of address this with, with a blunt instrument, instead of looking at in individual mechanisms, uh, I, I feel like that plays pretty well with the uh, meta-analysis on step count and all-cause mortality rates yeah. that, that I posted on Instagram a couple weeks back. Um, you see a not quite linear, but roughly linear um, decrease in all-cause mortality risk as step counts go from, I think, on the lower end, like 2,700 steps per day up to the highest range where they had data, I think was like 17,000 steps per day, but just, just precipitous drop off in all cause mortality rates as step counts go up, which, you know, in, in free living humans who aren't like super competitive athletes, like step counts are a, a pretty decent proxy for general physical activity and energy flux. Yeah. So I think when you talk about, taking this information and saying, okay, well, what, what can a human really glean from this literature and apply? I think the general principle is, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with having periods of life when you are overfeeding for the purpose of building muscle, building strength for athletic purposes. But I think in general, when you look back over a 78 year lifespan, you'd like to look back and say, okay, for much of that time, I was not acutely in an enormous energy surplus, and I had a reasonably high degree of energy flux. I, I think that's the best we can do to try to leverage some of these mechanisms. But the, the idea, in my opinion, of, of having a straightforward application of this energy restriction research, I just don't think it's feasible. The protein restriction seems less relevant to humans. And I think when you do the protein restriction, you make big sacrifices when it comes to health span specifically related to sarcopenia later in life. So um, while there are interesting mechanisms here, I, I think the key thing is when, when I focus on what I can do for longevity, it's, you know, making sure I have a nutritious diet, making sure that my energy flux is high, a high level of uh, physical activity, um, keeping energy balance generally in check. And if you wanted to, to you know, really start tipping the scales, you might say, instead of just being an energy balance with high energy flux, maybe I will try to establish a deficit and get down to a body fat range I feel really good about. And then you'll you'll probably be experiencing some additional benefit of that slight degree of energy restriction and then achieving a body fat level that seems to correlate with some positive things related to cardiometabolic risk factors. So for now, I kind of think that's the best we can do. Uh, and, and so the, the thing that fitness people will, uh, or, or should, I, I think, uh, be encouraged by is the fact that it doesn't look like, uh, protein restriction within a normal range of protein intakes is necessary or will necessarily be helpful. Uh, you know, 
if you wanted to try to leverage some of this protein restriction literature, we'd be talking about very, very low protein intakes that would have uh, other problems associated with it when it comes to longevity. Um, physical activity, good. Maintaining a body weight where you're healthy is good. Um, so there's stuff to take from it, but yeah, I, I don't think we can use the rodent stuff and say, perfect, I'm going to do that. Well, yeah, I, I mean, I think one of the drawbacks of the rodent literature, uh, independent of the fact that we're not rodents, is one of the things you mentioned is, you know, for the most part, these are just mice that are kind of chilling in their cage and uh, being fed a, a particular amount. And you just kind of see what happens. I mean, with free living humans, you're also dealing with behavioral adaptations. And so, yeah. you know, there are obviously tremendous benefits of uh, exercise, e either just from, yeah, just moving around doing day to day stuff or like dedicated training, like more intense exercise, like both of those are very good things. And so like, we're not, we're not mice, like we have behavioral adaptations to energy balance and how we feel. And I would be shocked if most people doing 50% caloric restriction are moving around very much. Right. Uh, and so, you know, if you're potentially getting some benefits from uh, energy restriction, but that is necessarily coming along with pretty large reductions in activity levels, you might be losing more than you're gaining. Yeah. And one thing that's interesting is that, you know, while the caloric restriction evidence is pretty good for mice and for rats, um, comparatively speaking, the effects of exercise aren't that great for their longevity. <laughs> um, it's not negligible, but it's, it's, it's not that great. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's one of those things that really highlights those key differences is that for humans who are main, in many cases, our, our main issues related to health span and lifespan are, can I maintain activities of daily living? Exercise mm -hmm. is critical. Can I maintain my cardiometabolic health? Exercise is critical. Uh, and looking at these rodent studies, it's just a completely different context when it comes to what's important for longevity. Mm -hmm. So I, I just to reiterate and kind of put a, a conclusion on it, I think the information about physical activity and energy flux and simply not being in a surplus, I, I think we can leverage that without necessarily saying, Hey, I need to get shredded to be healthy. If you carry that out over time and you have the ability to sustainably induce an energy deficit rather than just being at maintenance with high energy flux, I, I think even better, you know, but, but it's, it's critically important to recognize that, we can have some of these really tremendous benefits without necessarily saying the goal is weight loss. Mm -hmm. The goal can be weight maintenance with high physical activity. And I think there can be huge longevity benefits from that. Sounds good to me. All right. That went way longer than I thought, but I hope at least three or four people enjoyed it. So, I mean, I enjoyed it. I thought it was fun. I got to talk about capybaras. Yeah. Okay. So Greg, obviously macro factor is in full swing. We've got uh, a thriving community of users who are loving it. Uh, a lot of great interactions in the Facebook group and the subreddit. And on the podcast, we came out with a new segment called tech support, where we talk a little bit about new stuff in the app, or we talk about different features within the app. So what is going on with tech support this week? Yeah. So uh, I've got uh, two things to talk about. 
So the first tech support related thing to mention uh, is if you download Macro Factor and you start playing around with it, try swiping things. So one of the things that we wanted to do with our food logger is have quick, so we wanted it to have all of the functionality that someone might want to have in a food logger, um, but we also wanted it to be as easy and quick as possible to do all of the things one would want to do. One of the things that has affected me previously with food logging is just how long it can take to log things sometimes. Like I am not particularly interested in, uh, you know, trying to spend two, three minutes to log every meal that I eat. Um, so we wanted to make things quick, which meant we didn't want actions to be nested behind like two or three different things you had to click on to get to a particular action. And so the, the action pattern that we've settled on that allows you to do everything you'd want to do and do it quick uh, is swiping things. And that has been confusing to some people because that isn't a common thing that you're expected to do in most food loggers. Um, most, most of the time it is just clicking stuff. So sometimes just a click, sometimes a log, a long press. Very rarely are you going to be swiping things. And so there's a lot of functionality in our food logger that I think people are not discovering and getting frustrated because they don't discover it because they don't think to swipe things. Yeah. So um, just for some backstory, I, I met my girlfriend on a dating app and that was the one thing that I insisted upon. I said, it has to be a swipe based <laughs> app. So that's, that's my fault. Yeah. It, it had great success for you previously. So you said anything with the swipes are good. Correct. Uh, so for example, there've been a lot of questions like how do I delete a food from, uh, from my timeline? You just give it a long swipe to the left. Uh, how do you copy and paste something? You give it a short swipe to the left, click copy, paste it wherever you want. Um, two very exciting new features that should have uh, gone out already by the time this episode airs. If not, it will be very soon after this episode airs. They're already on, on my device, on the internal beta, uh, and they've been submitted to the App Store and Play Store. So they should be out within the next day or two, depending on how long approval takes is uh, explode recipe. So for example, if you have a saved recipe and uh, you want to log it as its constituent ingredients, either just because it makes your food log look prettier um, or because, you know, like let's say you eat the same four foods for breakfast every day, but the uh, amounts of each ingredient might differ a little bit. You might want to be able to save that as a recipe, but then have a way to log each food individually so you can easily change the amounts. Uh, that's nested behind a swipe function. Um, and then multi-add is here as well. So if you do a single search or if you go to search and your smart history pops up and you want to be able to add three, four, five things to your plate all at once without having to go back to the search bar every time, that's also a swipe feature. So within the search results that come up, you swipe, click log, swipe, click log, um, so anyway, there's a lot of cool stuff behind uh, swipe features. And once you get a feel for it, it does make food logging a lot quicker. Um, but I think that the on our end, I think the discoverability of that could use some work because um, I think people just aren't thinking to try to swipe things. Uh, and, and that's that's on us. We're, we're trying to get people used to a new um, 
a new thing to do with your fingers in a food logger uh, that, that people just aren't thinking to do. But as part of getting the word out and making people aware of it, uh, tech support segment. A lot of people using Macro Factor listen to the podcast. So, you know, if if you're thinking like, hey, what can I do with this thing in my food log or on my timeline or on my plate or whatever, try swiping it. Uh, there's a lot of cool stuff behind the swipes. Try everything. Try tapping. Try swiping. Try long pressing. Yeah. Uh, yeah, There, there's a lot of... It, there is crazy functionality um, nested behind as few actions as possible. But uh, yeah, to, to make that work, um, you know, we do use long presses more heavily than other diet apps. We do use swipes. I don't know if anyone else uses the swipes at all. Um, but yeah, so that's, that's just something to note and keep in mind. Uh, and then a slight update on a previous tech support segment. Um, and this, this brings me great joy to let you know. Uh, so I think either the first or second tech support segment uh, we talked about database issues and how really the only consistent complaint we got from users outside of the U.S. and Canada was that you pull up the barcode scanner, you try to scan something, nothing comes up. Um, and just quite limited food databases outside of the U.S. and Canada. That is going to be changing for a lot of you guys very soon. So if you live in the U.K., Australia... Uh, Ireland or New Zealand, we're adding a new food database, which should be here very soon. Uh, and by very soon, what I mean is uh, I sent the wire transfer to the company yesterday. Yeah, we paid for it. <laughs> yeah, so we so, better get it soon. So we, we've uh, we've already made the payment. There, there will be a little bit. So you know, don't necessarily expect it tomorrow. There will be some engineering involved and some testing involved uh, to make sure that. The app doesn't get confused when you pull up the barcode scanner because it'll be trying to look at nutrition X results and results from this other database. Um, so yeah, it, it may not necessarily be instantaneous, but we have made that purchase that will be coming very soon. Um, and we've already started kind of mulling around uh, and investigating some more concrete ideas to improve database coverage outside of US, Canada, UK, Australia, New Zealand, Ireland. Um, it's going to be a bit more challenging to fully cover everyone excellently. Um, the, <laughs> the countries that we're already handling, that's kind of the low-hanging fruit. Uh, but I, I'm excited with the progress we've made so far because on the last tech support segment when I talked about this, I was thinking it would probably be the type of thing where like if we could if we could get there in two to three months, we'd be pretty excited about it. Um, but now we're talking best case scenario, time scale of days, worst case scenario, probably time scale of weeks. Uh, but that that is going to be coming very, very soon. Yeah, it's really exciting stuff. Yes. And I also have a quick uh, Stronger by Science article discussion segment. Uh, so we recently had a guest article from Cameron Gill uh, about reverse Nordic curls, uh, otherwise known as, I, I think I saw someone call them uh, quad fallouts or something. Uh, I Previously to this article, I'd always just referred to them as uh, uh, body weight knee extensions. So I think it's a very good article. I enjoyed it a lot. 
Um, they have become, so uh, reverse Nordic curls or body weight knee extensions have become a staple of my training now that I've started training in my basement instead of in a gym. Um, so one of the drawbacks with a lot of like barbell exercises or just bilateral exercises in general is that they primarily target the monoarticular heads of the quads. So your vastus medialis, vastus lateralis, vastus intermedius. Um, but most exercises that involve simultaneous knee and hip extension. So, you know, you're talking quads, you're talking split squats, you're talking step ups, all of that stuff. They tend to have really low rectus femoris activation, which makes sense logically. It's kind of the same thing I've been talking about for years with the hamstrings in the squat, but in reverse. So if you're trying to extend your knee, but also extend your hip, it doesn't make a ton of sense uh, biomechanically to rely heavily on your rectus femoris because if it's contracting hard, sure, that's good for knee extension, but it's going to be opposing hip extension to some degree. So uh, your nervous system tries to rely on the monoarticular heads of the quads as much as possible. Um, and so it can be challenging to train the rectus femoris well, at least in a knee extension context, uh, outside of, you know, just being able to use a knee extension machine. But with, uh, with body weight uh, or with reverse Nordic curls, just with body weight, um, you, can, you can hammer the shit out of your rectus femoris. Like the first time I did them, uh, that, was, that was the first thing I noticed. Like I was starting to get a pump in my quads and I was like, this pump is different than the pump I'm used to. And then I realized like, oh yeah, it's the head of the quads that I literally never use. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, it, it's been good. Uh, you can get just a great quadriceps stimulus without spinal loading, which, um, you know, can definitely be challenging uh, outside of, you know, if you don't have access to a leg press or a hack squat machine, even though I guess hack squat loads the spine as well, but it's not much. Um, but yeah, it, it's a really good just general accessory lift for the quads. It's a good way to uh, target your rectus femoris, uh, especially in the context of body weight training anecdotally for me. So I've talked about several times I've been playing more basketball. Um, my knees don't love basketball as it is. They never have. They especially don't like it now that I'm losing weight. Cause the thing is now that I'm losing weight, I'm more vertical. Uh, at, at, uh, in the two seventies, your boy's not getting off the ground very far, but like once I got below about two fifty, I was like, I don't know, man, I can start challenging at the rim a little more. I can start going for more rebounds. Uh, and so <laughs> it's good. I'm better at basketball now that I've lost some weight, but my knees were really starting to take a beating and uh, started doing more reverse Nordic curls. I would say in like June or July. And the first time I did them, my knees despised them. Like I, I tried to do them strict hips extended going all the way back. I got about midway down and my knees said, fuck you, Greg, we're not doing this. Um, so I humbled myself. I, I did some exercise regression for the first time in a long time. I, I'm not, I'm not a regression guy. Um, I, I generally just say, give me the hardest version of an exercise, but I'll just not do it for many reps. I, I humbled myself. I regressed. Um, so instead of doing reverse Nordic curls with full hip extension, which makes it quite challenging, um, if, if you can't do that yet, 
you can just flex your hips. That uh, brings your body center of mass closer to your knees. Uh, and so it makes it a lot easier. So I started by doing regressed re uh, reverse Nordic curls. Uh, my knees could tolerate that. So I, I basically put the, uh, the amount of stress on them that caused uh, some degree of discomfort, not pain. So I, I kind of rode that line. Uh, and as my knees started feeling better and as I started getting stronger at them, I just progressed to being able to do strict uh, reverse Nordic curls over time. And th this is purely an N equals one thing, purely anecdotal. They've made my knees feel so much better and I can take so much more basketball now and so much more jumping without my knees getting mad at me. So for me personally, they've been just good for a general quad stimulus. Uh, they seem to be pretty good for, again, I'm not saying this will generalize to everyone, but for me personally, they seem to have been quite good for my knee health. Um, and it's a good article. You should check it out. And if you've been thinking to yourself like, hey, I have minimal equipment and I want to do something for my quads that is not just more squats, uh, give them a try. It's it's a very easy exercise to set up and it's a very good exercise. Yeah, it was a great article by Cameron. Um, it's got a video. The article goes into depth about how to execute the lift, how to progress it. Really, really comprehensive work. So be sure to check it out. This is one of those exercises. Uh, I've talked about this before, but there was like this one particular week, uh, early, early, early COVID, where it was like, Every gym on the planet was like, okay, we're all shutting. And so if you were like me and you had a whole roster of clients, you're like, oh, I need to make a lot of home-based programs <laughs> immediately mm -hmm. with minimal equipment or no equipment, right? And looking back, I wish I had more familiarity with this exercise and all the different variations and, and you know steps of progression it would have been such a valuable tool to utilize back then. So uh, the best time to learn about it is as soon as possible, I think, Be especially with how many people are still currently training out of home gyms. It's a, a really, really versatile, really valuable exercise. All right. So uh, to wrap up the show here, I am going to answer a couple of questions that I've gotten in various places. Um and I'm still uncertain about exactly which ones I want to answer, but I, I definitely want to answer at least a couple protein ones to stay on theme. We talked a little bit about protein restriction. Um, this one is probably the most on theme. This was submitted by Half Guard Hipster. Uh, I forget where because I just kind of accumulate these questions and I, I never get to them. And at this point, I have no idea where this came from. Well, seeing as the username that you copied and pasted includes how many points it has and how long ago it was posted. I'm going to assume this was Reddit. That would make sense. Uh, but I don't have enough familiarity with Reddit <laughs> to, uh, to have the whole format down. So the question was, uh, you know, we've pretty extensively talked about the range of protein intake for maximizing muscle growth. And this individual was asking about the other side of that spectrum. So what's the lowest protein intake that someone could eat and still build, you know, an appreciable amount of muscle, assuming that they have adequate calories in their diet and they're training effectively and things like that. So instead of looking at the top end of kind of optimization with the range, like what's the, 
if I wanted to have a low protein diet, what should I try to get up to in order to make sure I'm doing pretty okay? And honestly, I think one of the easiest ways to answer this is just by like a quick visual assessment from some meta analyses on the topic. So these are two metas about protein intake and uh, hypertrophy or increases in lean mass that we've already talked about on the podcast. So there's Tagawa and colleagues, which is fairly recent within the last year or two. And then there's the Morton paper from 2018, which is, uh, it's a classic, uh, very popular meta on protein. So if we start out with the Morton paper and we just kind of visually assess, um, you know, the classic figure that everybody talks about with that paper where they get the, the kind of typical optimized range of 1.6 to 2.2 grams of protein per kilogram of body mass. When we look there, um, you know, what's really interesting is that people are doing pretty okay kind of across the board. Um, and I think that's something that's underappreciated is the fact that training matters very bigly. Like training is without question, training is what is stimulating the accretion of muscle tissue and lean body mass. Having the availability of protein, you know, having sufficient protein around is permissive. It, it facilitates the process that is largely stimulated by the actual training. You know, I mean, the, the training is really pushing things forward and the protein intake is facilitating that. So if you look at the people, uh, you know, the, the data points within, the, within this figure, there are people down around, you know, 1.2 grams per kilogram per day who are doing just fine. Uh, and and I, I would actually say that that's probably about where I'd say if, if you're lifting and you're like, I'm not all about the high protein stuff, but I'll meet you halfway. How much do I really have to get in? Uh, you know, looking at this figure as low as 1.2 grams per kilogram seems pretty fine to be honest. Yeah. I mean the, the thing that people I think miss about this figure is, is like ultimately they were doing a breakpoint analysis. So yeah. they assumed there is going to be a positive slope up to a particular point, and then it's going to be flat. And so where, where is that break point? Like, where does it go from being a positive relationship to flat? Um, and the figure includes a confidence interval for that break point. It's represented by a bi-directional arrow uh, near the x-axis. And I think people, I think people just miss that confidence interval. So the studies included in the paper had protein intakes of about 0.9 to 2.3 grams per kilogram per day. So 0.9 to 2.3 is the range we're working with. The confidence interval for the break point was from 1 to 2.2. So, I mean, the, <laughs> the, the potential range for where gains go from being positive with increased protein intake to flat uh, spanned almost the entire range of protein intakes of the studies included in the meta-analysis. So yeah. uh, to, to treat 1.6 as if that is the number and there's no possible other number that it could be based on the research, um, that, that's just simply untrue. That's the, the paper people cite to make a claim such as that does not support that claim. Right. Yeah. And then, you know, if we look at the Tagawa paper, um, they had a number of figures. They did one of those things where there was like a, a figure with nine panels 
And it was a thorough way to do it. It's like, well, what if we controlled for this? But what if we controlled for that? And what if you're lifting? What if you're not lifting, but you are exercising? You know, there's all these different scenarios. But I think the most representative uh, panel of that particular figure was panel B. Uh, it was the relatively unadjusted values in people who are lifting. And it was looking at total protein intake, you know, grams per kilogram per day. And then on the y-axis, you know, looking at those increases in, uh, I think this was fat-free mass, if memory serves. But what you see is that, you know, from uh, this doesn't have the individual data points; it just kind of has the trend line and the ninety-five percent confidence band around that trend line. Uh, and it's a nonlinear um, uh, approach to modeling, so it's not just a straight line. There, there, there's a bend to the line. And what you see is that there's a, a pretty steep upward trajectory going from like. 0.7 grams per kilogram up to, I don't know, what is that? 1.3-ish, would you say? Yeah, like 1.3, 1.4. Yeah, 1.3, 1.4. And then it starts to flatten out quite a bit. It's still going up. It's not flat, but it's flatter. Um, and so, I don't know, when I triangulate you know, these, these kind of meta looks at the literature, compare that with some anecdotal experience, compare that with some interventions, look at the magnitude of effect. I mean, Sometimes you'll see, you know, like, oh, high protein was better in this study. And it was like, yeah, but it was like you jump from 1.4 to like 2.6 grams per kilogram. And you got like an extra, you know, 0.8 kilograms of fat free mass, you know. So it, at that point, how much, you know, how big is that effect? How much does it really matter when you're completely overhauling your nutritional approach in order mm -hmm. to achieve it? I don't know. I, I'd say my numbers, like if you wanted to shoot for the lowest end that you you really feel like you can feel okay about, I'd say probably around 1.2 grams per kilogram. Do, do you feel similarly or do you have a different number you'd throw out? No, I, I agree. Yeah. And, and honestly, once again, I'm the, I'm a nutrition guy. So I have every reason in the world to tell you, you need to dot every I cross every T please lose sleep over this stuff so that mm -hmm. it makes me feel important. But the reality is training is really good for muscle growth. You just need enough protein there to support it. So we can have the conversations about optimization. They're important. They're valuable. But if you're just saying, listen, I just want to get a decent chunk of the return on my investment here, 1.2 uh, within most body composition ranges should be pretty sufficient. Um, not not to optimize, but to to get a good chunk of your gains. I mean, I, I can tell you exactly what I did in macro factor and how I approach my own protein intake. So yeah. when I started, I was about 120 kilos, give or take. Um, and so I, I just locked in 1.2 grams per kilo as my protein target. And I treat that as a minimum for the day. Like if if I'm and I guess it's higher than 1.2 now since I've lost some weight, but I, I locked it in at 1.2 of my initial body weight, yeah. um, 1.2 grams per kilo. And so that's like 150 grams per day. And if I fall below that, I'm like, eh should eat more protein today. That's on me. Uh, but that happens pretty rarely. And if I get at least 150, feel pretty good. Uh, if I'm 20, 30 grams above that, feel a little bit better. Uh, and I have absolutely no interest in eating more protein than that. Right. And one thing you'll see, by the way, uh, that's rarely discussed, um, I say that as if I consume any content whatsoever. I don't know what's being discussed. <laughs> that was a bluff. <laughs> <laughs> that was a bluff. Uh, but 
one of the things I don't hear about because nobody's shouting it into my window. One of home. the things you assume is being discussed. <laughs> is not being discussed. Is not being discussed. Is that a lot of people, when you give them a really ambitious protein intake and their goal is fat loss, sometimes they'll they'll get so fixated on like, oh, I can't be under protein. Mm-hmm. It will actually cause them to overeat other macros and push their calorie intake higher for the day because they'll say like, Man, it's toward the end of the day. I'm 40 grams short on my protein. I can't undereat my protein. And they'll kind of accept the fact, like, yeah, well, this meal is going to bring some other fat, some other carbohydrate into the mix. I'm going to go over my calorie total for the day by a pretty, a pretty big margin mm-hmm. just for the sake of hitting a minimum protein intake that frankly, for one day, going under that protein intake is not going to impact them whatsoever. Well, yeah, no. So that that's exactly why I chose the strategy that I did when I was setting up this diet. Because uh, for me, like, you know, some people live on a diet of like chicken breast and tilapia and like, God bless them. If you can do that, more power to you. I can't. Um, I don't know. I derive a lot of pleasure from food and I don't want to eat stuff that tastes like nothing or is just super bland and super lean. Uh, and so, you know, virtually all of my protein sources have some amount of fat tagging along with them. And, you know, I'm not eating like ribeyes every day, but I eat a lot of chicken thighs, for example, instead of chicken breasts um, or like sirloin, something like a 90-10 steak instead of like 96-4 ground beef or something like that. Um, and so I think one of the problems I'd run into previously when I tried to cut is I would wind up with super low carb intakes or just wind up way exceeding my calorie targets just because there was enough fat coming from my protein sources that uh, if I were aiming for like 1.8 to 2 grams per kilo or sometimes even up to 2.4, if I was aiming for a pretty high protein intake, that would necessarily mean severely restricting carbon take to an amount that I didn't find sustainable or really struggling to stay beneath my calorie targets. And so for me, one of the things that has been helping me on this cut is coming to accept a lower protein intake a little bit more. Uh, And my thought process was exactly the same as what you just walked through. I looked at the literature and I said, I feel pretty decent about 1.2. If I lock that in and I hit at least 1.2 every day, generally go over by a little bit. But if if I hit that every day, I think that that is probably adequate protein intake for myself. And when I'm aiming for 1.2 instead of 1.8 or 2 or 2.4 or something like that, that just opens up the rest of my diet so much that I can still eat enough carbs to not feel super deprived. Yeah. So yeah, just beyond like physiological uh, mechanisms or anything like that, just from a pure practicality perspective, that's, that's been huge for me to be able to stick to a, to a consistent calorie deficit. Yeah. And I've obviously noticed the same thing with clients as well. Um, One other uh, protein question that came my way, it came from social media. I forget exactly who asked it. Um, but I, I'm basically using it purely to prove a point. To, <laughs> to, I'm being too honest today, aren't I? I'm uh, using it to reinforce a point, but I will answer the question. Uh, so the question was, uh, there was a new study that came out showing that higher protein intake uh, in the form of essential amino acid supplementation, I believe, did not lead to higher 
uh, rates of muscle protein synthesis during energy restriction. So does this mean that our protein needs are unchanged by caloric restriction, regardless of the magnitude of the energy deficit? And, you know, this was something that surprised readers because, uh, you know, the general kind of typical advice is if you're going to be in a big deficit, you might want to bump up protein a little bit. You know, uh, if you're, especially if you're very lean in a big deficit, protein needs will probably bump up a little bit. Um, what was really interesting is you look at the study and muscle protein synthesis rates uh, were not different, but whole body protein balance was. We, there was a collection of different measurements they took to to approximate, you know, what's our balance here of anabolic, catabolic processes related to body protein. And the last sentence of the paper itself is taken together. These results suggest that higher essential amino acid doses are necessary to optimize both muscle and whole body protein status during the catabolic stress of underfeeding. And you listen to that statement and you contrast it with the finding that energy restriction did not appear to, to, or, you know, high versus low protein in, in the, in the uh, case of this energy restriction, it didn't seem to matter for muscle protein synthesis rates. And yet the take home point was you're going to want to bump up your protein if you're restricting energy. And I think that, that contrast throws a lot of people for a loop. And I think it highlights a really critical distinction between looking at muscle protein synthesis and assuming that it absolutely necessarily represents long-term hypertrophy. I think a lot of people have gotten it in their mind. If something increases muscle protein synthesis, if A increases MPS more than B does, then A is better for hypertrophy, period. I have the proof. It's data, right? But there are many instances in the literature where that doesn't work out. It, it breaks down. And if you were to interpret some of these muscle protein synthesis papers at face value, you would make uh, some conclusions that are erroneous. They, they don't, it's not just that they didn't pan out. It's that they don't have face validity they, uh, on their surface. They don't seem right because they aren't right. So like you could look at acute muscle protein synthesis data and there's literally a paper that would indicate if taken at face value that for an obese individual doing a, a unilateral study design, their leg that doesn't lift should grow more muscle than their leg that does. No one would accept that at face value. But if you look at the way the muscle protein synthesis data is presented, that is the conclusion you'd, you'd have to draw if you're taking it at face value and you're assuming muscle protein synthesis equals hypertrophy. Yeah, that, that, was, that was one of the studies that we talked about during the whole P ratio back and forth. Exactly. Yeah. And I said, I, I will accept that argument if you will, if you believe that the non-lifting leg should grow more muscle than the lifting leg. I've never met anyone that would take that at face value, right? So you have to check yourself with some of these interpretations and make sure that if you're going to take it at face value, you have to take all of it at face value. You know, uh, there, there are similar um, situations with some of the research looking at plant versus animal protein sources where you'll look at, you know, acute muscle protein synthesis data and say, there is an enormous difference between these protein sources. Like this animal based protein source should 
should promote so much more hypertrophy than this plant-based source. But then when we put them in the context of, you know, whether we're looking at individual supplement interventions or entire diets, that difference that seems huge at the level of muscle protein synthesis really shrinks when you start looking at actual hypertrophy measurements over time. Uh, a different example is with raw versus cooked eggs. Uh, I think it's generally accepted. Maybe research will uh, change our perspective on this in the future, but my general understanding is that raw albumin from egg is far less digestible than cooked albumin. That's my understanding that, that I've seen in in studies. I mean, that, that wasn't Rocky's understanding, but that was not, I mean, there, there, there are differing opinions. We just want to make it clear. This isn't settled science, right? Uh, you know, academic research says one thing, uh, Balboa et al have some, <laughs> some differing opinions. So do, do with that what you will. Yeah. But I mean, we're talking about a difference on the order of like 90% versus 50% mm -hmm. digestibility big. Uh, and then a paper comes out showing absolutely no difference in muscle protein synthesis, right? And so we have to be very cautious when we interpret muscle protein synthesis findings. That's not to say that they're not useful. It's not to say they're not informative. It's not to say that the people using them are doing a poor job. But muscle protein synthesis is, by definition, not hypertrophy. Um, and whenever we look at something, a proxy measure, protein quality, protein digestibility, muscle protein synthesis, uh, amino acid composition. We can use that information, but we have to contextualize it and use it very carefully. And we have to continuously cross-reference that with applied studies when they're available, actual longitudinal designs. And there's actually a fantastic review paper that just came out. And the review paper, the title is Making Sense of Muscle Protein Synthesis a focus on muscle growth during resistance training. So this was one of those things. I was starting to feel like a conspiracy theorist, how I would, I got to the point where people would ask me about like, Hey, what's up with this muscle protein synthesis thing? And I'd be like, yeah, I just don't think that has anything to do with hypertrophy, you know? Um, well, so I, I remember, um, a, a question that I used to field somewhat frequently after, um, God, I, I forget who the lead author on it was, but there there was a pretty influential narrative review that came out that, that was just about like uh, nutritional things to optimize muscle protein synthesis in lifters. And one of the things that it said was for healthy young people, uh, muscle protein synthesis seems to be maximized with a protein bolus of 0 0.25 grams per kilogram which if you weigh 80 kilograms would be like 20 grams of protein or something like that. And then I think uh, the paper also recommended four or five uh, protein boluses per day right. to, to uh, get you the protein you need and not uh, compact it too much. So you might run into like the muscle full effect and stuff like that. Refractory periods, yeah, yeah. things like that. Yeah. yeah. So you put those two pieces of information together and we were just arguing that, you know, maybe you can get away with down to about 1.2 grams per kilo of protein. But the, the bulk of the research does still suggest that if you want to be better safe than sorry, one optimize rather than do good enough. Exactly. Right. Something like 1.6, 2.2, something somewhere in that range tends, tends to get you where you want to go. Um, but yeah, if you look at, the the data there the acute muscle protein synthesis stuff and the number of protein boluses per day 
you would say like, oh, somewhere between one and 1.25 grams of protein per kilo of body mass, that should maximize hypertrophy, which does conflict to some degree with the longitudinal evidence. And so people, people would ask me about that and they'd be like, well, what, what should, what should I put more stock in this muscle protein synthesis stuff or the longitudinal study outcomes? And I said, I don't know, man, like call me a rube, but if I want to know about building muscle, I'm going to look at the studies that actually assess building muscle over time. So, um, yeah, this is, I I think a cyclical conversation comes up from time to time and, uh, my opinion is when you have longitudinal studies, you uh, pay more attention to the longitudinal studies. Right. And, and, and like I said, I was getting to the point where I kept people would say, well, you know, this acute MPS stuff doesn't match up with the longitudinal stuff. And I'd say, then just go with the longitudinal stuff, you know, and, and the, the just the title of this new review paper kind of uh, validates that that fact that a lot of people have been taking this acute mechanistic muscle protein synthesis information and just over extrapolating it into conditions that aren't appropriate and making conclusions that uh, might not be appropriate based on the study design based on you know uh, one of the big things that that comes up with these studies just to put some degree of specificity into the conversation is like if you're doing uh, a single bout of unaccustomed exercise exercise and you're looking at immediate muscle protein synthesis response that's going to correlate very poorly with long-term hypertrophy potential. Uh, there's just too much muscle damage going on. It's you're, you're not getting a good snapshot. So there are instances where this muscle protein synthesis data can correlate much better with, with long-term longitudinal outcomes. It's usually uh, people that are not doing unaccustomed exercise, people that are not totally untrained and, you know, engaging in training for the first time, uh, measurements taken over longer time courses rather than just a few hours looking at a snapshot there. So once again, I don't want to discredit the research that's been done on most muscle protein synthesis. It's valuable research. It's informative. But when we have instances where it totally contradicts more applied longitudinal research, um, I'm more inclined to go with the longitudinal stuff, not to say it's perfect, you know, a lot of the measurement techniques that we use uh, for muscle building over, you know, eight, 12 weeks, you could argue eh, those aren't perfectly sensitive. So maybe we have to have some caveats there as well. But getting back to the initial question, you know, when someone says, hey, should I bump up my protein if I'm lifting and I'm, you know, really lean and really restricting? Uh, I'd say, man, our, our good friend, uh, the good Dr. Helms did a pretty good systematic review indicating that in those situations, protein probably ought to be bumped up a little bit. And that was based on some pretty good applied longitudinal designs that I feel really good about. So if I'm looking at, you know, if I, on one hand, I've got the body of literature from a really well done systematic review on those applied trials. And on the other, I've got acute muscle protein synthesis data give me the first one every time, you know, give me the former rather than the latter. So, uh, if you want to look into that review paper, I am going to link it in the show notes. I think it's, I think it's really well done. You know, it, it points out the issues with longitudinal body comp assessments, which are fair. It points out the methodological considerations that could lead to misapplication of muscle protein synthesis data. Uh, overall, very well done and very relevant to that question that I received. Um, 
I'm going to do one more here. Uh, All right, very, very brief. Uh, somebody messaged me on social media and asked me like, Hey, what's up with alkaline water? You know, does it incre- increase blood pH? If so, does it even matter? And, you know, one of the things that comes up a lot, there's a lot of confusion with these, uh, alkaline diets, alkaline water. You know, one of the questions people ask is just simply, is it possible to change blood pH with these types of interventions? And, I think a lot of people in the evidence-based community take a little bit of a shortcut to the answer. No, I don't think that's necessarily true. So we can change blood pH. It's just to a very small extent, uh, you know, with these types of nutritional interventions. And, you know, one of the first places I went with this is like, let's just go straight to the sodium bicarbonate literature, right? Like it's a, a very basic solution that people ingest. And we look at blood pH after ingestion, after exercise. And we do see, uh, in many, in many cases, a statistically significant increase in blood pH. Um, but human blood is always going to be slightly alkaline unless you're in, in a, you know, potentially precarious situation where it's become, you know, blood pH is getting dysregulated. Um, so, you know, some type of acidosis is, is happening that's clinic clinically relevant, but generally speaking, we're going to try to keep our blood pH between 7.35 and 7.45. And so, yeah, when we when we, you know, consume an extremely basic beverage um in high amounts, you know, so a big dose of sodium bicarbonate for example, whether it's capsules or beverage or whatever, we might see a, a statistically significant increase in pH. Um I, I still don't know if alkaline water is going to get you there though. There well, I mean if yeah. if you're talking about 20 depending on your size like 15 to 30 grams of sodium bicarbonate taken before exercise dude that's that's a lot more bicarbonate than you would be consuming in like a liter of alkaline water yeah there was the reason i expanded out into that literature was because i did see like one or two studies where there was a statistically significant increase as it was reported because the samples were enormous but it just did not matter. It was like the small, it, it was not the same, the same magnitude as mm-hmm. sodium bicarbonate, but it was like, yeah, we found this effect. I assume there was an enormous correlation from pre to post test that, that kind of helped the P value along the magnitude was just so small. It couldn't possibly matter, but I expanded out cause I was like, okay, are there other, is there a precedent by which consuming an alkaline, you know, a basic alkaline beverage like, you know, a sodium bicarbonate intervention. Is there a precedent for this Mm -hmm. where we could see an increase? And so the answer is yes, but the answer is also that I just, when it comes to to alkaline water, like it's a bit of a shortcut to say like, no, it absolutely never could possibly have any measurable impact on pH, but it just doesn't matter. Like the, the idea that alkaline water, you're going to consume it and it's going to have a positive effect on, I mean, they make all sorts of claims about stuff ranging from bone health all the way to like cancer prevention. Are you going to consume alkaline water that's going to change your blood pH? Probably not. Uh, Even if there was an effect, it'd be so small as to be completely negligible. And will it impact any relevant health-related outcome? None that I can think of. Uh, So functionally, it doesn't matter. The answer to this question, like, 
is there any reason to be drinking alkaline water? In my opinion, no. Uh, but I, I did want to at least acknowledge like there, there are ways that blood pH can change to a measurable, measurable degree, but the body has so many redundant mechanisms to keep it within a fairly tight operating range. The pH thing just doesn't seem to matter. Like you can try to drive it over 7.45, but I mean, alkaline water, like you said, ain't going to do it. I mean, that also still wouldn't be a good thing. No, it'd be terrible. It'd be terrible. (laughs) When people talk about uh, like health risk from blood pH dysregulation, they're generally thinking about pretty extreme acidosis. Yeah. I mean, if you could put yourself in a comparable state of alkalosis, that would be just as bad. It would not. Yeah, that's yeah. It would not be good. It's kind of like one of those things. Um, I, I think kind of a slightly analogous situation is when people talk about uh, doing all sorts of weird stuff with sodium potassium balance. Mm-hmm. And it's like, it's so important to physiological function that there are a lot of redundant mechanisms to keep it within a, a tight operating range to the extent possible. And in the off chance you are able to override that stuff, it's bad, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Yeah. Not good. Yeah. So, um, when it comes to alkaline water, uh, the, the reason I brought up the study was just because someone was, um, they were confused. You know, they they said like, Hey man, uh, everyone's saying that this can't increase blood pH, but here's a study on PubMed, which is supposed to mean something. And it did. Mm -hmm. And I looked at it and I said, yes, it did. It was statistically significant. It was physiologically meaningless. And that's a good thing. <laughs> you know, if if all of a sudden blood pH was nine, you're screwed. Yeah. You're so screwed. It wouldn't happen. But but yeah, so alkaline water, not worth your time, not worth your money. Um, but if you ever see um, I think it's good to know that when you're looking at other research, like so for example, sodium bicarb, you shouldn't look at a study that says, Oh, by the way, blood pH increased, P is 0.04. Shouldn't look at that and say, well, this study got botched mm-hmm. because that that's not technically accurate. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so you you tried to res- you tried to address that question uh, respectfully. Sure. I just want to dunk a little bit. Uh, I would say, God, probably a dozen different times. Like th- this isn't just a one or two time occurrence. I'll stumble across on my like Instagram Discover page, um, like health tips yeah. Instagram accounts. And I love that shit. Like I, people probably have a completely inaccurate assumption of what my, what my media consumption habits are. I spend virtually all of my time seeking out good information, either on PubMed or journal websites or talking to people who I respect. I, I consume virtually no kind of like solid quote unquote fitness industry content. Like I know there are people out there doing good work. I just, I just don't read it. Um, when I am consuming non-serious content, I'm looking for the trash. I, <laughs> I want to see the garbage. I love it. I think a lot of people see that stuff and they get frustrated. They're like, Oh no, the state of the industry. This is so bad. I'm very nihilistic. I fundamentally don't think anything is going to get that much better. So I just bathe in it. I, <laughs> I enjoy it. I find it so funny. Um, so anyway, in wading into just the pure depths of Instagram bullshit, I've come across 
like I said, probably at least a dozen posts from health and fitness influencers saying, look, you need to alkalize your body. That's good for you. It's going to prevent cancer. It's going to give you so much mental clarity and energy. And here's some tips to do it. First, consume alkaline water. Duh. Of course, everyone knows that. That's the good stuff. But here's another tip. Did you know uh, citrus also alkalizes your body? So put a put a squeeze of lemon juice in your <laughs> alkaline water. And I'm sure 95% of people listening to this understand why that's funny. It, <laughs> pH isn't... It's not a magical thing. Uh, pH stands for potential hydrogen. Um, so if it's... And so it's basically a measure of how much hydrogen, which like free hydrogen, that is acid, uh, how much free hydrogen a thing can accept. Uh, and so like that, that's a pure kind of like applied chemistry base based measurement. If you put an acid in a basic substance, it necessarily raises the pH or uh, necessarily lowers the pH and makes it more acidic. So, I mean, if, if alkaline water could elevate blood pH, make it more basic, it does. I don't give a shit if you're claiming that there are magical properties of lemons that can also increase blood pH. If you put acidic lemon juice in alkaline water, that shit's not alkaline water anymore, or at least you're making it less alkaline than it previously was. Absolutely incredible. I love it so much. Uh, if you find bad fitness content, send it to me. Uh, and not just if if it's just like a one off or someone's just kind of like, ah, eh, they post some workout tips and eh, whatever. And and they just have a stinker. I don't care about that. That's not the good stuff. You want the shock value. I want I want the worst of the worst. And here's the gold mine. If you find a uh, a single account that like 40 to 70 percent of what they post is pure garbage, send it to me. I love it. I want to fill my Instagram feed with meme pages, dog pages, and the worst fitness content imaginable. So uh, anyway, that's all I'm going to say. If if you come across someone who's pushing alkaline water in combination with citrus fruit, cut, cut them out of your life and put them into mine. You should expand. You, you mentioned dog pages. Really, any mammal will do. I, I've got a lot of raccoon pages. I've got some bear pages. I, I'm a sucker for animal friend accounts. What What does that mean? Like two animals of a different species that are buddies. Yeah, yeah, okay, like, yeah. I like that cross species friendships. Yeah, I like that a lot. Um, but yeah, yesterday I was pretty deep looking at a bunch of panda content. The red panda, mm-hmm. very cute, very good stuff. Um, but I guess the moral of the story is. Don't, there's no reason to drink alkaline water, but um, technically, you know, certain interventions could have a st- statistically significant significant effect on blood pH, um, but it's still going to stay within that tight range that that's typical because, I mean, we're good at managing that and we're pretty lucky that we're good at managing that. Um, there was one other thing I was going to say about this and I have completely lost it. Um, if it comes back to me, I will let you know. Do I see you? I see in the outline you have some stuff about breathing and how that regulates um, pH. No, I was going to get into the mechanisms of how we regulate pH, but we're just good at it. Um, 
and good for us. I'm, I'm oh, proud if, of us for if that. If you want to alkal, if you want to alkalize your body, uh, one thing you could do is just hyperventilate for a while. Yeah, like if if you there was a, a um, did you cover that in mass? I did. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, if if you wanted to just see, like, hey, if I were to alkalize my body, how would that make me feel? You can get kind, you can get relatively close to the limits of human blood alkalinity just via respiratory alkalosis, uh, which you can get to just by hyperventilating. You're blowing off CO two uh, and like the CO two carbonic acid relationship, like that. That's one of the ways that your body regulates pH via your lungs and kidneys. Like those are the two main things. So if you're just blowing off a ton of CO2 by hyperventilating, you put yourself in in a state of respiratory alkalosis. So, you know, if, if you want to see how you feel uh, as your as your blood pH approaches uh, 7.45, you can do it. Um, <laughs> have fun. <laughs> yes. Um, th- I remember the thing I was going to say. Thank you for uh, filling that time there with a lovely anecdote with good advice with good advice. Um, one thing to keep in mind, if you are looking through this literature is that urine pH is way more responsive to dietary fluctuations than blood pH. So be sure not to confuse those. Sometimes we kind of convince ourselves, Oh, blood values, urine values, whatever. It's all the same. But one of the redundant mechanisms, you know, we have all these overlapping mechanisms for pH control one of the mechanisms is that your kidneys can kind of decide, Hey, how how much should we be pumping into the urine here to just kind of balance things out? Yeah. That is why blood pH can be so tightly controlled. Yeah. Yeah. Like your, uh, what is it? Your entire blood volume filters through your kidneys every five minutes or something like that. I've never heard that, but I believe it. And it's also crazy at the same time. I I believe that's the case. So yeah, if you, uh, manage to create a relatively large perturbation in blood pH uh, via some non-pathological means. Uh, you're you're going to like all all of that blood that you just alkalized is going to pass through your kidneys within the next five minutes. And if the level of alkalinity got high enough to even begin threatening uh, your body's homeostasis you're just going to put a bunch of bicarbonate in your urine and now, now your blood pH is back to normal. So th- that that is another thing. Like even if you can perturb blood pH, those perturbations are going to be very short-lived. Oh yeah. Very transient, very short-lived. And and that is why urine pH can vary quite a bit more. Like if, if something kind of acidic is going on and you have more acidity in your blood, uh, those excess hydrogen ions are going to very quickly be filtered into urine and you're going to piss them out. If your body does get considerably more alkaline um, and, and you'll, you'll also uh, increase respiration to, to alkalize your blood as well. I, I don't want to make it sound like it's all urine. Uh, but yeah, if your body gets more alkaline, you'll just put more bicarbonate in your urine and, and get rid of it. So yeah, I- any perturbations, not only are they generally quite small, but they're also quite short-lived as well. Yep. All right. To play us out here, let's stay on theme. We've talked a lot about protein today. Uh, you made some protein bread. I've not tried it, but I am excited to hear about it. You should try some after this. I will. All right. So, um, 
Yeah, I have gone on record on the podcast saying that protein versions of normal foods are generally trash. And if people if someone makes one and they say that it is as good as the real thing, they are deluding themselves. And I stand by that. But 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 uh, I I have recently started experimenting <clears throat> with trying to make protein bread Um Biggest reason for that is like uh, sometime like I, I generally have a variable amount of calories left at the end of the day uh, after dinner. I'll have generally somewhere between one and maybe 500 calories left over. And and I'm not a stickler for hitting my calorie number dead on the head. But, you know, if if I'm under by enough, I'll be like, yeah, you know, I, I, I should eat a little something to get a little bit closer. Um And so when I'm under on fat or carbs, I have things in my life that I can go to, like eh, a spoonful of peanut butter, some craisins. Really, it's peanut butter and craisins. Those are those are my go to's. But if I if I do get close to the end of the day and I'm like 20 grams under on protein um, and, you know, maybe I have 300 calories left. I don't want to just like get a very small bowl of my meal prep food. That seems sad. Uh, I don't keep protein bars on hand. And I personally just despise protein shakes. If someone else likes them, no judgment. Uh, So currently what my approach has been is just to make a couple eggs. Uh, But I don't always feel like cooking something at 11 p.m. So I was like, okay, I want something that I I can get some protein in um, that hopefully will keep uh, at, at room temperature for a reasonably long period of time. Uh, and that won't be too much of an abomination. So I decided, Hey, what if I just replace some of the flour and bread with casein? And the reason I thought that is casein behaves pretty nicely for baking applications. Here's another heuristic. If someone is saying, Hey, I'm making a protein version of this food. And you look at the ingredients list and you see whey protein heavily featured, they're lying to you. Whey protein does not bake well. It, it gets a crumbly texture. Uh, whey protein is already slightly bitter, and applying heat, I think, tends to enhance the bitterness. Um, you can put enough other shit in whatever you're making to mask whey a little bit, but it, it really doesn't behave nicely for most baking applications. The texture is a giveaway. Yeah, it's, it's bad. It's not good. Casein behaves very well. So casein hydrates much like wheat flour does. Like it, it behaves very similarly. Um, like it, it won't form gluten, obviously, because it doesn't have gluten in it. But a lot of the ways it behaves is very reminiscent of flour when it's hydrated. Um, and it also has a, has a pretty mild taste. Like it tastes... If you just put a bunch of casein in water and chugged it, it's not going to be the best tasting thing in the world, but it does have a very mild taste. And I don't think the taste gets worse when you apply heat. So I, I, I was just kind of playing around with like, how much casein would I need to put in some dinner rolls to give them enough protein that I could eat one or two dinner rolls and get a non-negligible amount of protein from it? And so it turned out that with a like 900 gram of flour dinner roll recipe. If I replaced 250 grams with casein, I was, I was pretty enthused with what the macros looked like. 
So I said, yeah, fuck it. I'm going to try it. And so last weekend, I made a batch of protein bread. And again, I'm not going to say that it was as good as the real thing. But it was like 90% as good as the real thing. And honestly, my complaints with it don't relate to the casein. Um, I did not trust my baking skills enough. And so since I was, I, I was thinking like, since I'm re reducing the gluten content, I want to put another binder in there just to make sure that everything holds together the way I want it to. And so I added three whole eggs. And so really my only complaint about the bread is it has a slightly stronger eggy flavor than I prefer. Uh, it, and it's, it's not particularly bad. It's not offensive. And since these are dinner rolls, like, if you microwave it and slap a little butter on it, it completely uh, covers the eggy flavor. So I would say that I'm 90% of the way to having a protein bread recipe that I'm very, very satisfied with. So uh, this episode's going to come out on Thursday. Probably on Friday, if you're listening to this pretty soon after it comes out, I am going to go attempt number two for protein bread. And th this time I'm leaning into something kind of brioche. -y. So I'm going to replace the three eggs with egg yolks, uh, probably six yolks, and um, probably increase the amount of honey that I put in the bread, make it a little bit sweeter. So if, if there is still any uh, eggy taste or if some of the casein flavor starts coming through a little more, a little bit of honey will cover for that and maybe a touch of butter as well. Uh, I'll, I'll play around with the recipe just in theory to see what would still give me macros I liked. Um, but I, I'm going to be making that uh, between Friday and Saturday because I'm going to go with an overnight proof. So uh, keep an eye on my Instagram stories. If I, if I perfect protein bread, I think this will be a game changer. If you're into fitness and you're also into home baking, uh, I, I would strongly recommend you try it out. Uh, you can you can follow along this weekend. And uh, I, I mean, so the macros, I, I don't want to sound like I'm teasing anything. For this first batch of protein bread I made, I think it was 177 calories per roll uh, with 14 grams of protein, 23 grams of carbs, and three grams of fat per roll. That's pretty good. It's not bad. Yeah. So, yeah, if I can get away with, I think, bumping the carbs up to maybe 26, 27 per roll, and the fat up to even as high as like six or seven grams per roll, that would still match the macro splits that I'm generally aiming for. I might just be able to subsist on an all bread diet, which <laughs> honestly that that would slap. What more could you want? But uh, yeah, that that's coming this weekend. Keep an eye on my Instagram stories. And uh, beyond that, just as a general point of advice, if you want to try to make like protein brownies, protein cookies, protein muffins, whatever, really use anything except for whey protein. The reason whey protein is so popular for protein shakes is because it does everything you wouldn't want protein to do for baking purposes. Uh, it doesn't hydrate well. It dissolves really well. So it's it's thin in solution. And generally, if you're trying to make moist, tender baked goods, you want the opposite. Like you don't want something to disappear in solution. You want something to be 
like sucking in water and hydrating the same way that flour does. Uh, and, and casein does that for you. And other popular proteins, like I, I've heard some people having success with pea protein. I've heard some people having success with soy protein. Um, I, I don't think either of those are quite as good as casein, but they can get the job done. But really just don't try to make protein desserts with whey. Try, try literally any other protein and you'll, uh, you'll probably wind up with better results. All right. Good stuff. So follow along Greg's personal Instagram. Personal one, right? Yeah. And uh, you can watch the experiment this very weekend. Um, as always, thanks so much for joining us for this episode of the Stronger by Science podcast. And we will be back soon with another. Thank you for listening to the Stronger by Science podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, be sure to sign up for our free newsletter to get concise breakdowns of relevant research, as well as 28 free training programs for all skill levels and all schedules. We hate spam just as much as you do, so we'll only email you when we have something really interesting to share with you. You can sign up for the free newsletter at strongerbyscience.com newsletter, or just go to the Stronger by Science homepage and click the free programs button at the top. If you want to join in on the Stronger by Science podcast conversation, be sure to check out our Facebook group and our subreddit. The links for both are provided in the description of today's episode. Finally, please remember that we are not medical doctors or registered dietitians. So before you make any changes to your exercise or nutrition habits, be sure to check with a qualified healthcare professional. Once again, thank you for listening, and we will be back soon with another episode of the Stronger by Science podcast.